Hey friends, it's me, Tangia Renee, with That's What She Did podcast, and I am excited to introduce you to our episode sponsor, History Colorado. I love a great museum, and History Colorado is one of my favorites. At eight museums across Colorado, including the Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver, the team at History Colorado wants you to discover a personal and powerful connection. Plus, their incredible Bold Women Change History series is coming back this fall of 2021. Their members support local artists and designers, after-school programs for working families, and educators working with at-risk youth. Find your history at historycolorado.org. Hey there, Inspiration Junkies. It's me, Tangia Renee. And before we get to the show, I'm going to quickly ask for a favor. If you're a fan of the show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of building resources that will help more women of color and non-binary people amplify their work and leverage the power of their stories through guest blogging and blogging and storytelling and PR training. We need to do two simple things to make that happen continue to grow our audience so we can get more stories into more ears and fund a new website that makes blogging, vlogging, and training possible and easy. Now there's two simple ways that you can help us out right now and help make that happen. First, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually do go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile and leave us a written review, they help even more. The second thing you can do is go to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Tangia Renee and simply buy the show a coffee. It's that simple. All proceeds from Buy Me a Coffee go towards amplifying the voices of more brilliant women. Really simple, easy peasy, just the way I like it. Leave us a review and consider buying us a coffee. Thanks so much for your support and for continuing to share our work. Smooches! You're listening to That's What She Did Podcast. I'm your host, Tangia Renee. That's What She Did Podcast is a show about the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you probably don't already know. And I'm crazy excited to have you here because this is season seven, the Movement Makers Edition. All season long, we're bringing you incredible, impactful women who are finding cool and innovative ways to move their communities forward. They're creating movements one way or another. I'm so excited to have you here. If you find value here, please consider sharing this show with your friends because that helps us grow and head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Renee, and you can buy the show a coffee. All proceeds for this show go to amplifying the voices of more impactful women. Thank you for joining us and let's get started. Welcome to the most recent episode of That's What She Did podcast. Really excited to introduce you to our guest, Farzana Doctor. She's the Toronto-based author of four novels, with seven, her most recent novel having been chosen for the 2020 best book lists, including Indigo Chapters, Apple Books, Amnesty International, CBC Books, and a few more. Farzana is also the Masi behind Dear Masi, a new sex and relationship column for female genital mutilation and cutting survivors. 
She's an activist, a part-time psychotherapist. She even is an amateur tarot card reader. Today, she's on the show to talk about her work and all that she's doing around ending female genital mutilation and cutting. And her new book, Seven, is part of the story of how she's helping survivors fight back. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to That's What She Did podcast. This is Tangia Renee, your host, and I am so thrilled to introduce you to Farzana Doctor. She's a writer. She's an activist, a part-time psychotherapist, I guess, when she has time to fit it all in on top of everything else that she's doing, and award-winning author. So I'm so, so thrilled to introduce you to her latest book and the work that she's doing to end female genital cutting or female genital mutilation, as I think it's more commonly known. I learned so, so much from from reading, getting started with the book. This is really an issue that I thought had mostly been eradicated across the world. I had no idea it's as prevalent as it is now. And so we're going to talk about this movement to end this practice all over the world. So I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to have you, Farzana. (laughs) I'm thrilled to be here, Tangia. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I love talking about this issue. It's one that is so taboo and so silenced that when we can have the opportunity to normalize the conversation, I jump on it. Yeah, like I said, I really, so when your book came to me, and I was like, oh, okay, the theme here is, is around female genital cutting. I knew about it sort of in a very abstract way, mm-hmm. not very in a concrete way at all. So I thought I was just going to be reading a history book, like a fictional history. And I, I got my hands on it, cracked it open and realized this was something else entirely. And as I looked through your materials and looked at your website, I came to understand shockingly that this issue is actually quite huge. I think it's just something that we don't really talk much about in the Western world. So it felt very foreign to me. So I'm happy to learn more about this. But before we get there, I definitely want to get our audience up to speed and just learn a little bit more about you. How did you get here? What was your journey to being a writer and eventually writing your latest book, Seven, which is wonderful, by the way, and this activism that you're so engaged in, what was the starting point for you? In terms of being a writer, I think I was a writer my whole life. I'm from an immigrant family and security, especially financial security is a big deal. I shifted from kind of my creative side, went to university. I ended up being very interested in the activist issues. And that's how I ended up becoming a social worker because you're supposed to have a financially secure career, right? I'm very glad I I went that route because I do have a part-time private practice in the afternoons and I get to write in the mornings, which is a beautiful balance. And then the activism sort of happens around that. And in terms of this issue, about five, six years ago, I joined a group called We Speak Out that was just in its early uh, days. And it's a group that is focused 
on working in the Dawoodi Bora community, which is the community I was born into. And in our community, it's estimated that in my generation, 85% of us underwent what's called cutna or female genital cutting, which is it's a cut to the it's supposed to be a cut to the clitoral hood when a girl's around the age of seven. Of course, sometimes more damage is done. This is done by amateur cutters and to girls under duress. It's just one of the many forms of female genital cutting or mutilation that happens across the globe. And in the last five years, 10 years, there's been this kind of uprush, this kind of Me Too movement around FGM that has started. And so we are learning about more and more countries, more and more survivors, more and more types. It's, it's kind of exploded in the last while. And so I really wanted to be able to write a novel about this because novels allow our reader to get into an issue in a digestible, kind of immersive way. The FGM part of the story is embedded in another story, a story about a woman, her relationships, her family, all of that. So it's this is a, a nice way to tuck a difficult issue into a novel so that people will read it and find it um, pleasant to read, even a page turner and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So I will agree. It, it is definitely a page turner, as I was sharing with you before we started recording. I just got my hands on the book last night because it was delivered to the wrong address. So I didn't have time to read the full thing. And I fell asleep reading it because I didn't want to put it down. That's oh. not an exaggeration. It's such a good book. And I, even though I haven't gone that far into it, I do think that it really masterfully blends strong stories and storytelling with this incredible social justice issue that I think, at least in the Western world, doesn't feel like it's a thing. Yes, yes. It's it's not talked about very much. It's starting to be talked about more. And just, just talking about the Western world, one little bit of info I like to tell Western audiences is that until the late 70s, FGM was covered under health insurance plans. And it was done with white Christian, mostly evangelical women, it was or, or girls, it was done to them. And it was considered to be like a cure for and I'm putting this in air quotes, hypersexuality for lesbianism. Like it was a common practice in the 70s with that particular community. So we've already heard from a couple of survivors from those communities coming forward. And I anticipate that we probably will hear from more. Wow, that's news to me. I had not heard that. When I started reading your book, I realized I don't know anything about this. Probably like most people like me I didn't I had no clue it really sounded like something that was from 70 90 100 years ago in a rural village somewhere (laughs) and had been eradicated and so it's so I I went to the the WHO website World Health Organization I was like so what does the WHO have to say about this because surely this doesn't happen outside of some very deeply rural community somewhere. There's just no way like with the information that we have access to today, it's, this isn't happening in like normal (laughs) cities or. (laughs) Yes. And I was shocked that according to the who they're saying that there, 
as of today, are more than 200 million girls and women that have been cut across. That's probably an underestimation because that's based on an estimate of about 30 countries where it's practiced. And in recent years, we now are at 92 and counting countries as more and more survivors come forward. So I imagine it's much bigger than that. And they're also estimated that every 10 seconds, a child is cut in this way. Wow. 10 seconds. Yeah. Wow. So was there a catalyst moment for you when you were just decided, this is the thing that I have to spend my time and energy on trying to change? Mm -hmm. It felt kind of like a compulsion, you know, the catalyst moment was a woman named Massima Rinaldi, who is the founder of We Speak Out. She wrote an amazing article that came out in the mainstream Indian newspapers and with social media. I live in Canada, and I saw it on Facebook. And people were talking about it very quietly in our community before, but it didn't become part of mainstream like public discourse until around that time and then a number of other activists also started doing it and it just started to explode so I think the moment was when I saw her article I contacted her over messenger not really expecting a reply I just said hey thank you so much for doing that she wrote back to me and she invited me to join the WhatsApp group of activists that then later on formed We Speak Out. And it did feel very compulsive in that moment. It was a very kind of emotionally fraught time. I was trying to figure out my own connection and how I felt about the issues. I was trying to gather information from my own family who didn't want to share much information. I was having these fully formed fictional scenes come out in my morning writing routine. And I was also waking up to like dozens of messages on this WhatsApp group of women who are like so livid and wanted to do something. So it was this big kind of moment when I got kind of hooked into this issue and I've been active since then. Yeah, I I certainly could understand why. And it, it sounds like there is a connection with your own heritage to this practice. So how has that impacted you or changed you in any way? Yeah, I think the main way that it's changed me is when we uncover and heal a trauma, and we can do that at any age, right? Often memories are very, very suppressed and don't sort of tap you on the shoulder until you're ready, you're psychologically ready. And I hear that this happens for a lot of women in in perimenopause. And that's Mm -hmm. when it hit me. So I was already going through perimenopausal symptoms, lots of emotional shifts. And then I started to have these sort of fuzzy memories, body memories, nightmares coming up for myself. So it was big. But whenever you whenever you heal, whenever you, you address your trauma and you start to heal your trauma, it's like taking a missing puzzle piece from your life and being able to fit it into place. And so in some ways, it makes your life more difficult, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then it also makes your life make more sense. And that was my experience with working on this issue. Have I you also s- got to connect with a whole bunch of Bora feminists, which was a okay. new experience for me. So That's what I, that was going to be my next question is, what is the community response to this now that you're somebody who's active and vocal about this when it comes to activism of any kind? I think 
especially when something like this, that's such a deeply rooted cultural tradition, sometimes you're met with such a, a, a big backlash. Have you experienced that? We, we have as a group, like I'm the Twitter handler for We Speak Out. Mm. So there's, there's a group of Dawoodi Bora women who have decided to fight for their religious right to cut their girls. They want to maintain the practice. And so many of them have been very trollish with us on Twitter. So that's where the backlash has come. They're a very well-funded organization. They spout a lot of misinformation, a lot of myths about this. So that's the main backlash. But I would say with the more kind of mainstream Dawoodi Bora community, and of course, with every religious community, we exist on a spectrum from more orthodox to non-practicing people. And I would say that the least orthodox people have really been very supportive. And then some orthodox people have also been quietly supportive, but they've been working with us more anonymously. And I think it's the big kind of middle of that spectrum that is taking notice and listening to some of the information we're sharing about how this practice can cause a lot of psychological, physical and sexual harms. And the vast majority of the people in our community are peace-loving people who will listen to reason and want to shift things because this is understood to be like a social norm and unquestioned for so long social norm. And we have so many of those things in our communities. But if you can educate a community and say, listen, this doesn't have to be taboo, we can talk about it. And second of all, we didn't know before, but it causes a lot of harms. We need to end it. Many people are coming on side very slowly, but it is a a difficult conversation to have because it has to do with sexuality and genitalia and opposing the religious leader in our community who a lot of people feel very uncomfortable questioning. So it's a work in progress. (laughs) Sure. I'd like to introduce you to one of my favorite places on the internet the Free Body Society, an online apparel store that creates empowering t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, and accessories to inspire women to be bold and embrace their bodies, no matter their size. The Free Body Society is on a mission to ensure all women feel powerful and free in their bodies. From the perfect breathable tank for your next workout to a cozy crop top hoodie for those days when you want to make a statement or simply lounge it out, the Free Body Society has you covered. Personally, the super soft hoodies are my favorite. In fact, I'm wearing my curvy AF hoodie right now. I've never felt anything softer on my skin. Anytime I wear it out, I get a ton of compliments. And I love wearing the hoodies to the gym or out running errands because they just make a statement and draw people in. Any of the tops can be dressed up with a cute full skirt, jeans, and a blazer, or just throw on a tank and be workout ready. The options are endless. For being a listener of That's What She Did podcast, you get 15% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on any order over $35. All you have to do is use code SHEDID at checkout, and the discounts are all yours. That's code SHEDID at checkout. Don't forget to head over to freebodysociety.com today and hit that discount code. Smooches! 
So I read on the Who website that there's actually no religious script that directly supports this practice, that it's a cultural practice that certain religious leaders have perverted, I guess, have decided that is now part of religious practices as well. Is is that accurate? That's accurate. That's very accurate. Yeah. And across the world, religious leaders of all kinds, Christians, um, pagans, Muslims, they're denouncing this practice. But there are some religious leaders who have, I like the word you use, perverted meanings, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I took away when I, I read it. And mm-hmm. of course, I want to be sensitive and not misspeak. But that was the way that I understood it to be. That Yes. Well, we know that religious leaders sometimes can use their power in wrong ways. Mm-hmm. And an upright religious leader should be saying, gender equality is important. This harms our girls and women. We don't need to control anybody's sexuality. We need to provide good sex education instead. But what religious leaders do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a good question, right? I mean, here's the, anybody that, that follows, probably follows the show or anybody that knows me personally knows that me and religion have issues and this Mm -hmm. is the biggest one. And I'm always saying, we like to say in our society, whether it's Western society or whatever religion that we're talking about, that we value families and women and we hold them in such high regard. And I was like, you can say it all you want, but when your practices are about holding women back and not allowing them to live up to their full potential, then you don't value women and you certainly don't value families. It's a lie that you tell yourself to make you feel good about being in power. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And that's my soapbox for the day. (laughs) Wonderful. Good soapbox. (laughs) So in, in getting into this work, I mean, it's, I've just been fascinated and it's heartbreaking on one level, but beautiful to see. Like I went to the website, we speak out the organization you're involved with and beautiful to see all the work that's happening to bring this issue to the forefront. And that's one of the reasons why I thought your storytelling in seven is so smart and masterful. So I'd like to get into this book beyond the larger issue a female genital mutilation. Was there something more specific, a moment, a person, an event that inspired you to write Seven? I think it very much was um, the FGM story that pushed it forward. But I think I wanted to write, so I'll just maybe give a a quick synopsis for the listeners. So this is about a main, the main character, her name is Sharifa, and she goes to India on a marriage-saving trip. There's been some tensions in her relationship with her husband in previous years related to her infidelity. Anyway, so they go to India on a marriage-saving trip. Her husband is an academic who's on sabbatical, and she thinks she's going to be spending her time homeschooling her kid and doing some historical research about her great-great-grandfather. And she's in Mumbai in 2016, where this issue is really heating up. And her two cousins, her two favorite cousins are on opposite ends politically around this issue. And I made my protagonist, Sharifa, a little 
avoidant and a little clueless about this Mm -hmm. issue so that I could describe things in ways for her to kind of be understanding and the reader to understand at the same time. So but if there was a second issue, I would say it would be that about a year before I started writing this book, I started doing some research about my own great, great grandfather. And he heavily inspired the character of Abdulali, who is the ancestor that my character is trying to learn more about. And that was part of the fun for me in this book is was to try to write him because I couldn't find out much information about my own great great grandfather. No one knew him, no one alive knew him. But there's just kind of like the bare bones of historical information and a few stories that have been passed down. So I took those stories, I took that information exaggerated, embellished, made more fun, and created stories that intersperse the story with Sharifa so that we can see what she's Mm -hmm. not able to find out and what's really going on with this ancestor. Well, I I did notice that Sharifa was a little bit clueless, but I I felt like that made her very relatable because I felt clueless. (laughs) And I was like, I'm kind of going along with this character learning with her she thinks that she's going to do this like big genealogy project and ends up being more interested in the wives and their experience which sounds that's the path any of us would take (laughs) (laughs) and I had huge curiosities about my own great great grandfather's like kids and wives he had four wives like the character as well two of whom had died in childbirth one was a divorce that is like a top secret issue no one knows anything (laughs) about and then the last wife outlived him so I was very curious about that and I didn't find anything so I made up a lot of stuff for this book it was so I'm still reading it but there was one quote as I was flipping through sort of the deeper chapters of of the book which is something that I I don't recommend, but I always do when I get a new book is I just randomly flip to pages and start reading pages. And I don't know why I do this because it makes me like anxious to get to that next stage in the book. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I did it. And there was this quote that stood out to me that I wrote down and I'd like to get your thoughts on. So the quote is, while the men may have made the rules, it's the women, women I've loved who've enforced them. Yes. And I think that's really telling and interesting, considering that you just mentioned that on Twitter, the trolling that you received is largely from women who want to maintain this practice and defend it pretty fiercely. What do you think that's about? Yeah. So where I fall back to is I I think about Al-Tahawi. She's uh, such an amazing writer, feminist, and she talks about how women are often the foot soldiers of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So it's the patriarchy and the men making the rules. And that's very much the case for our community. We have this apex male leader and then all of his male, he's, he's got his own foot soldiers. But then below all of that are the women who are enforcing all of this. And most, I think, I, I can't think of any community where I haven't heard this, where FGM is practiced by the women and it's done secretly. And sometimes men don't even know about it in our community until recently when we started doing the awareness raising. Most men had never heard of this practice 
in our community. So it's quietly done, secretly done by the women because they are told that it is the correct thing to do. And they do it as loving parents and loving grandmas. They think that they are doing something right because they've been told that it's harmless and good. And so they're continuing the practice. And it's a very distasteful, unpleasant, painful, traumatic kind of process. But I think what happens because it is trauma and it's happening young, they're often not fully, what's the word? Like they're not fully in their bodies Mm -hmm. as they're thinking about or practicing this. I think a lot of them are a bit dissociated because that's what trauma creates all this overwhelm in Mm -hmm. our bodies, all this cortisol release. And so most of our memories go implicit, which are like kind of hidden inside of us in our bodies versus explicit, in a sense, explicit memories are those memories that we can narrativize in order and correct sequence and all of that. But I think for a lot of survivors, they have more implicit memory. And so they're kind of like, okay, my mother in law, my mother, my grandmother saying it's time to take my daughter for this practice. And they kind of say, okay, some might be uncomfortable, but okay, confused, unsure what they're doing, but they practice it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always, I don't know, mind blowing to me and fascinating at the same time, because you see this dynamic play out across the board in, in almost any situation where you see women wanting to stand up for rights and you'll see an, another a group of women push back on that. I think here, you know, in the West, we see it more as this recent, I guess, onslaught of sexual misconduct cases mm-hmm. that are coming mm-hmm. up of very famous people where, or famous men where a man would be confused. And then immediately you would see a woman or group of women defending him and sort of trolling or, you know, <laughs> yeah. gaslighting maybe the, the woman. <laughs> and mm-hmm. instead, of maybe they absolutely believe that this man didn't do that, which, okay, fine. But do you have to go to the next step of belittling this woman? You weren't there. How do you know what happened? Mm-hmm. It blows my mind and fascinates me at the same time that, as you say, women are often the foot soldiers of the patriarchy, mm-hmm. carrying it out. And when I think about my own experiences of feeling, you know, just beat down by this, the sexual dynamics, gender dynamics in our country, it was almost always a woman that put me in a position where I felt like I had to fight my way out of a corner. There's been not a lot of situations where a man directly used his power to mm-hmm. try to control or oppress or or leash out at me. It was almost always a woman. Yes. And I think it's because women have been very thoroughly educated in misogyny, you Mm -hmm. know, and so it takes us so much work, so much time to unlearn and to learn the truth, right? Because it's so much fiction, so much lies we have been, we have absorbed. And it's the same thing across all the other oppressions. We've just been taught all the wrong stuff. And If we don't engage in that work, or we want to maintain our own privilege and power in whatever way we can, we won't do the unlearning, right? Mm -hmm. 
it's just fascinating to me and heartbreaking and mind blowing (laughs) at the same time when you see that happen, because you want to be able to say, but this is happening to you too. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Let me tell you one hopeful story. Okay. We do have we do have hopeful stories of change in the community because there has been a lot of awareness raising in the last few years. So my nanny, my maternal grandmother, has been sort of paying attention. Her my my aunt, her daughter-in-law, and I have been active in these issues. And she has been asked twice to lend her image to campaigns that we do online. And she has agreed twice. And I feel so proud of her, this 96-year-old woman who never questioned any of this stuff, but she's got a good brain, right? Mm-hmm. And she's reasonable and she, she's got a great heart. So as she's listening to all of this, she can say, okay, yeah, I agree with you. Yes, use my image for your campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an example of how change happens person by person by person. And there's been a couple of legal cases against Bora's, Bora doctors. There's a big one that happened a couple of years ago in Michigan, another one in Australia. And I think the potential for legal consequences, because it's illegal in most countries, except Mm -hmm. for there's a few, like India is one of the few where it's not illegal, but it's illegal in so many places across the world. And so just the fear of legal consequences has also stopped people in their tracks. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot to be hopeful for. It's still difficult. It's going to take time. There's this goal globally for feminists working on this issue to end the practice by 2030. Ambitious goal. <laughs> Nine years. We'll see. We'll see. Does it feel like you're making headway? It does feel that way because more conversations are happening. And this book, you know, sometimes it was really difficult to broach these kinds of conversations because Mm -hmm. it is such a difficult conversation, uncomfortable conversation to have. But since I've written seven, I have, I've been invited to do lots of these kinds of conversations. So panels and podcasts and book clubs and festivals and that kind of thing. And so I'm having these sorts of conversations with so many more people. And so the book has been a real vehicle to be able to break silence and normalize these conversations. And I've heard from women in my community who have said, this really was healing for me personally. I had never had a chance to really work this through. Or they'll say things like the first time I've talked to my mom about it. So that's the way we're going to change this is through Mm -hmm. a million conversations. Yeah. And I think using this book, a a fictional narrative to tell the story, it makes it less overwhelming. I think it makes it less heavy in some ways. It allows you to, I guess, lose yourself in some of the characters because there's more happening than just the conversation of the cutting yes there's more happening than just the conversation of of the terrible things that happen to many of these women right there's the relationship dynamic between Sharifa and her husband which I thought was which even though I'm still at the beginning the book seems very interesting to me it's not it doesn't feel like the sort of stereotypical male woman husband wife relationship he seems surprisingly supportive of her (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Which you don't always get in a lot of in a lot of storytelling, especially when you're talking about history and cultural nuance and you get that sort of stereotypical me man you woman kind of a thing and and that is not the dynamic here so you have that dynamic you have her being really a western woman Mm -hmm. going back to her roots to learn about her heritage and sort of immediately being assailed by how different and and experiencing that that clash that happens when you're like oh we're not in Canada anymore we're not in the United (laughs) States anymore yes and and that's such a common experience you know like many of us will many of us who are from immigrant backgrounds will say okay North America it's kind of my home and it's also not my home Mm -hmm. and then you go back to the home country where your ancestors are from and you're like this kind of feels like home, but it's not home. So I was trying to portray that a lot for Sharifa. And just your point about, you know, embedding, putting this into a story that has other things going on. That was very, very intentional because I knew that this book and its issues could seem too heavy or scary to people. And so how do you turn that on its head? Well, Mm -hmm. you have lots of humor, (laughs) you have compelling relationships. And I'm, I'm I'm a therapist in the afternoon, and I love doing couples therapy. And I'm very interested in how how we make long-term relationships work. Gosh, they're so hard, right? (laughs) So I was trying to do that with with that marriage and also to be a little aspirational. You know, men, come on, men, you can be better allies. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've written him as a pretty good ally. Yes. I, I mean, I can't wait to dig into the characters more, but that was immediately apparent as you're reading through the book that I really did expect the stereotypical like okay they're you know their background their their families from India so I expected like this typical Indian relationship which I don't even know what that is if I'm being honest <laughs> I you know my I'm not Indian <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> but I know what I've seen on TV right and that's how we I think this I mean the, the book seems more for a Western audience, if if I'm correct. And and I think that's actually really smart because we're the ones that don't know anything about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're the well, ones that I, need to learn. <laughs> I, I think I would I would really like it also to be read in India. I'm looking for a publisher in India right now. And like India has become, especially in the cities, this very globalized place. And I was reflecting with this book club that I was talking to a few days ago, and they were saying, gosh, he seems like such a good man. His name, the character's name is Murtaza. And I was reflecting on like, I actually, when I think about the people, the men I have met in my own community, now, of course, they're not perfect. And they've internalized sexism in their own way and all of that. However, Most of the men that I have encountered, whether they are very conservative or not, are pretty gentle and they're pretty good with their wives. And I'm, I need to think a little bit more about that. But so the men in the book are really based on that feeling that I have for the men of the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. I mean, you're making me think about all of the men in my life and even though some of them are deeply conservative and have ideas about women and role, gender roles that I want to slap them upside the head for. 
<laughs> they're, I think to your point, yeah, they're very gentle in a way you wouldn't expect them to be if you were only looking at stereotypes. That's an interesting yes. point. <laughs> yes. And I, and that's, that is a part of what I like to do with all of my novels. I do have a mix of characters, right? So somebody who would fit the stereotype more, but I also try to look at that because Islamophobia is really real. It's you know, globally, right? And one of the tropes is that Muslim men are like the worst. (laughs) And that's just not my experience at all. So I I also am a bit conscious about not writing to that trope. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that. I think most of my audience knows this. You wouldn't know this, but so my stepfather um, who raised me is Muslim. He's from Saudi Arabia. And it's absolutely true. Like, the stereotype that Muslim men are these horrible, oppressive creatures was never true. I never saw him behave that way <laughs> at all. This It just isn't true. And he was probably the most influential person in my life that taught me to stand up for myself. Amazing. That's great. So, <laughs> And then, then the other trope for the women is that we're all like passive victims, you know? And mm-hmm. so I've tried to write like a range of characters as well for the women in the book to really kind of show how we're, we're everything. We're everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that so much. Again, I'm, I'm not done with the book. I can't wait to finish it. I have a feeling I'll be done with it in the next maybe tonight. (laughs) It truly is a a page turner. It's so well written. I totally get why it's award winning and appearing on all the list of must read books. It's definitely a must read. And it's a, a great way as we've been talking about to learn about something real that's happening in this world every day and affecting millions of women across the globe and just get you thinking about what does it all mean? And hopefully inspire you to get involved in some way. So for any of our listeners that want to pick up the book or get involved more, learn more about the issue, where should they do that? So the book should be available everywhere in North America and every store. And it's available in all three formats, audio, ebook, and paper. And if you'd like to learn more about the issues, you can follow me. I write about the issues quite a bit. So I'm just at Farzana Doctor. You can also follow We Speak Out, which its handle is Speak Out on FGM. Wonderful. It's a global movement. I hope that as many of you as possible can get involved. And at the very least, Pick Up Seven by Farzana Doctor. Such a great book. On this show, we always give our books away when we get them. So as per usual, as soon as I'm done with this book, it'll be given away to an audience member in order for you to get the book you do need to be on our mailing list. So head over to our website. That's what she did podcast.com. Get on the mailing list and we will select somebody at random to send you the book and you're going to love it. <laughs> so oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Farzana, for joining us today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I've enjoyed the book so far and I can't wait to get it into an audience member's hands. Thank you so much, Tenji and Renee. This has been a really great conversation and I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
All right, folks, you know that it's a wrap right now. And you know what I like to do? I remind you to subscribe. If you haven't done that yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. And uh, get on our mailing list so that you don't miss the opportunity to win Seven by Farzana Doctor. Such a great book. Every author we've had on here is a great writer and you want these books. So don't miss out. All right, that's it for right now, folks. I'll check in with you next week. Until next time, we out.